King Leonidas I of Sparta is immortalized in history and on film for his bravery and military prowess. He led a group of 300 men who were willing to fight to the death. Their veracity in battle inflicted enormous casualties on the advancing Persian army. Though they lost that battle, it was enough to turn the tide of the war. Their bravery and courage was not only used as a source of inspiration in their own day, but it has been used all throughout history to strengthen the hands of warriors. Well, there is another group of 300 men whose bravery and courage brought victory and freedom to their people, and that's who we're going to talk about today on this episode of By the Verse. Welcome to episode 7 of By the Verse, season 2. This is a podcast all about God's Word. I encourage you to like and share this podcast wherever you are listening to this material. On our last episode, we were introduced to Gideon. Now, both Gideon and Samson share the most material in the book of Judges. So Gideon gets uh, three chapters in the book. He's only going to get two episodes on this podcast, okay? So this will be the, the last episode where we deal with Gideon. So let's hop right into chapter 7, and we will also deal with chapter 8, but we'll, we won't read much of chapter 8. I'll just talk through it. All right, so chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then twenty-two thousand of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and sent, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So Gideon is now at a point where he can begin his assault on the Midianite forces. But as we saw in the previous chapter, Gideon put out a fleece before the Lord twice. So I think the Lord kind of turns the tables on him and tests his faith 
twice because twice God pairs down uh, the number of people that Gideon is going to have with him. And it must have been kind of a psychological blow, first of all, for God to say, hey, you've got too many people with you. He only had 10,000 in the face of all the Midianites, which they couldn't even number, okay? So that's one thing. But the first time he took people away, 22,000 people left. I mean, that's a lot. And so if you're, you're looking at this, uh, that had to be a huge psychological blow to him and to the 10,000 who were left, that 22,000 men uh, were so fearful, they were able to admit their fear, basically, in front of everyone uh, by leaving and going home. Uh, but, of course, that wasn't enough. God decides to trim it down a second time. And here's where it gets a little bit interesting. Um, people have different ways of thinking about why uh, God used this particular test and what did it mean to lap like a dog and what does it mean that you know some of them kneeled or whatever. Uh, I think it's probably impossible for us to peel all of that back. I think the point is that God just wanted to get it down to a smaller number, okay? That really is the point. So uh, maybe the ones who put their hands in the water and scooped it up and drank the water out of their hands, that's the 300 group, uh, maybe they were more alert and able to pay attention to their surroundings by drinking that way than the others who just got down on their knees and, and started drinking. Well, we really don't know why God used that particular test, but the whole point is he got it down to a smaller number, and the number is really not important. It's uh, 300, but the number is there just so that uh, it's abundantly obvious that there's absolutely no way that 300 men could go up against the Midianites. I think God did this to make it abundantly obvious to Gideon and to the people. Of course, he, he says so, that they won't be able to boast on their own. But he's basically showing them that he's the one that is going to make the difference in all of this and not their military prowess and their numbers or anything like that. All right, let's pick it up at verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is in no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, 
Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay, so consider this scene. This, uh, I think, illustrates just how much fear has played a factor in Gideon's story up to this point. When we first encountered him, uh, he was hiding his wheat harvest from the Midianites. Uh, We also see uh, that he had a pretty low self-esteem, a pretty low view of his father's house and of his standing in his father's house. It wasn't an accurate view, but it was his view. Uh, Even after all of that, even after uh, God being with him, tearing down the altar of Baal, and and the men coming out to following him, he still put out a fleece before the Lord twice uh, to make sure that God was with him. So fear has been a constant uh, issue here in Gideon's heart. But I think that we need to point out that at no point did Gideon stop. At no point did he allow his fear to paralyze him from moving forward. And so what we see is God bringing him along in spite of his fear. And we would expect God to say, uh, I know you're afraid, you know, don't be afraid, I'm with you. Uh, we, we expect God to say, uh, be strong and of good cheer, you know, do not be afraid. We, we expect God to say that if fear is really the issue. But with Gideon, he deals with him a little bit differently. He gives Gideon these uh, opportunities to build his confidence slowly over time through these experiences, okay? And so even though maybe sometimes God can come across as harsh sometimes in the Old Testament, Here, I think, is a beautiful example of God's gentleness because at no point in this story does God rebuke him or seem to be harsh with him because he seems to be uh, fearful at times, okay? So uh, here, we see God giving Gideon an opportunity to do something uh, that will alleviate his fear, So even though God's brought him all the way to the point of battle, he knows that fear is still an issue uh, in Gideon's heart, but he gives him yet again an opportunity to do something about it. Here's the thing. What Gideon had to do to uh, put his fears finally to rest was actually a dangerous thing because he had to take just one guy with him all the way up to the edge of the camp of the Midianites. I mean, imagine how vulnerable that would have made them. They could have easily been spotted. I mean, surely they had spies. I mean, they they had an outpost, so this was right on the edge of uh, camp here. They had lookouts. You know, they, they had people who were watching, okay? And so for him to take one guy, and go up right to the edge of the camp close enough to where he could hear two guys in the camp talking, put him in a very vulnerable situation. But here's the thing. Sometimes we are unwilling to be vulnerable enough to actually address our fears. Gideon did not allow his fear to paralyze him from being able to do anything. Instead, he keeps pushing forward even through his fear. 
okay? We, on the other hand, allow our fear to paralyze us because we think the very fact of being afraid disqualifies us. Well, it never does. Staying afraid and not doing anything about your fear will keep you from what God has for you. But being fearful won't keep you from what God has for you. Gideon had to do something that was risky to address his fear. And maybe for you, the risky thing that you have to do uh, to address your fear is to set up that meeting with your pastor or to set up an appointment with a licensed professional Christian counselor, or to sit down with that particular family member and have that dangerous, risky conversation that you have been avoiding. But here's the thing. Even though Gideon was fearful, he did not allow his fear to stop him. Instead, he continues to move forward, even to the point of making himself vulnerable in this particular situation, so that he can put his fears to rest. And that's exactly what we should do. And so as he gets up close enough to this outpost, he can hear two guys talking, and they're sharing a dream And because people were very superstitious uh, at that time, they certainly thought a lot more deeply about dreams than we do. But even we today, uh, you know, we think that dreams, God can use dreams, okay? He can use dreams in our lives today, uh, just as he did in in biblical times. Um, And so these men are... are sharing a dream, and in the dream, a barley cake, which interestingly enough would have been uh, the the primary wheat harvest, the, the primary grain harvest that they would have had in this area that Israel would have been growing. Okay, so this this barley cake clearly represents uh, Israel, and there is maybe the insinuation here that it is dry and kind of cracked up uh, because it's hard enough to roll. It doesn't bounce. It just kind of it rolls into uh, the camp, and and maybe that has some significance for the condition really of Israel. Uh, but this dried up cake rolls into the camp, squashes a tent. Well, the Midianites were tent dwellers; they were semi nomadic people. So the tent represents Midian, of course. Um, and so the person, the the guy next to him in the uh, that he's telling the story to, uh, interprets the dream. This has to do with Gideon. So they obviously knew who Gideon was. They had spies. Okay, they had intelligence services, right? And so uh, they they had some idea of who was leading the force that was uh, brewing against them. Okay, and so this gave Gideon great confidence that God was with him, and he worshipped God. He worshipped God. He knew that God was with him, and he worshipped God, okay? And so this gave him great confidence that he could go back and he could lead the people. So what Gideon does here is that he gives instructions to his guys, okay, uh, the 300, and they take the provisions that they had, these provisions that were spoken of earlier that I didn't talk about, they were provisions of trumpets and jars and torches, okay? Because not every person would have had a trumpet, a jar, and a torch. And so when they pared it down from 10,000 to 300, what they did was they consolidated the number of jars, torches, and um, 
trumpets, and these trumpets would have been horns, uh, you know, animal horns that had uh, ropes connected to them or straps connected to them that would have hung, you know, across their shoulder. Okay, and so the plan is that they're going to blow these trumpets when he gives the order, and uh, you know it's going to be great. They're going to yell for God and or for Israel and for uh, Gideon, which I don't know. Maybe that's a pride thing there that he included that. Okay, so let's read on in verse nineteen. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Now this scene takes place at about 10 o'clock at night. Okay, That's the beginning of the second watch. Uh, so the people are sleepy who are going off watch. The people who are coming on watch are just uh, waking up and getting ready. So, And then there's obviously people who are sleeping. So this is a vulnerable time uh, during the night. It's a transitional time. So not everybody's completely alert. So when they start blowing the trumpets and breaking the jars, and, and they've kind of surrounded at least on three sides of the camp here, and so it made a lot of noise. I mean, the sound of 300 trumpets, okay? I mean, that would be enough to startle you out of a dead sleep, okay? I probably was also enough to start a stampede among the camels because they had so many. Uh, so there was the element of surprise here, but verse 22 makes it pretty clear that it was the Lord who set every man's sword against his comrades. So here we have yet a number example of numerous examples in the Old Testament where the Lord threw the enemy into confusion, panic, and chaos. Now, many of us have probably uh, quoted this verse, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Well, you know, it's also true that sometimes the weapon that's formed against you not only prospers, but it just straight up backfires in the enemy's face. Like it blows right back up in his face. And that's what happens uh, here. And so you got the animals running everywhere, the people running everywhere. It is a mess. And so the people began to flee and they began to flee back in the direction that they came from. 
Okay, so the King's Highway, again, it goes back down the backside of the Dead Sea. So as they're fleeing, that's where they're going. Well, as it crosses the, as the Jordan is right there, they've got to cross the Jordan to get back to the other side of the Dead Sea. And that gets into the Ephraim territory. And so what Gideon does, number one, is he calls out uh, Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh, which means a lot of the same people that God had sent away. Okay, uh, a lot of that original 22,000, uh, and then a lot of that 9,700 that was sent in the second wave. A lot of those guys were called right back into it. God didn't need them right at the beginning, but that doesn't, didn't mean that he didn't intend to use them all along. So just because you don't get picked first doesn't mean that God has left you out. And so they get called into it, but then Ephraim gets called into it because, again, the Jordan is right uh, there. They're in the best position to uh, get to the fords of the Jordan, those those waters right there at the top of above the Dead Sea, right as Midian is trying to escape to get to the backside of the Dead Sea and get further away uh, from Gideon. And so they do that. Ephraim comes out, they do that, they capture the princes, and they kill them. So let's uh, carry on, and, and we're not going to read all of chapter 8. Eight, I'm just going to explain it to you. I'm going to read the first few verses, and then after that, I'll explain the rest. So verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is uh, this that you have done to us, not to call us, when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely, and he said to them, what have I now? What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abazar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Okay, this is kind of important, I think, to uh, maybe even another story we'll get to later in the book of Judges, but really also in the uh, later times in Israel, is that the, the tribe of Ephraim, let's just call them high maintenance. Okay, because this is not the only time that they're going to throw a hissy fit that they weren't included or something like that. Okay, uh, this is going to happen again. And the tribe of Ephraim is a, is a very important tribe. They were a big tribe, but they were in the center of the country. And I think they saw themselves as much bigger uh, than what they really were. And the truth is, later on in the history of Israel, there are going to be times where God refers to Israel, all of Israel, Okay, at least the northern part of Israel, as Ephraim, and then times where he's just referring to the tribes, you know, in, in the prophets. And sometimes you have to look at the context of what's being said to know if is he just talking about the tribe or is he talking about all of Israel? That's how big, basically, uh, Ephraim uh, was. Okay, they had a larger than life, I guess, uh, persona. And so they were upset that they hadn't been included in the original invasion. And what uh, Gideon does is great. He basically uses a soft answer to turn away wrath. Okay, that's biblical, all right? He basically strokes their ego, says, hey, listen, you guys are better. Your land is better. And listen, God gave you the princes of Midian into your hands, okay? And so after he strokes their, their ego, um, their anger subsides. And after that, here's what happens. Gideon takes uh, his 300 men that he had, and they're continuing to pursue uh, the Midianites 
all the way. Like he's not content to just have them on the run. Like he wants to complete this mission. And so what he does is he, he continues to pursue them with just the 300 men that he had with him. And he comes to two towns, okay, as he's pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, who were the kings of Midian. He comes to Sukkoth, and he also comes to Peniel, and both of these towns basically, he asked them for help, okay, because he was exhausted. It was a long trip. He didn't have enough provisions uh, to go on such a long uh, journey pursuing these kings of Midian. And he asked these towns for help. They were about five miles apart. Both of them basically said, listen, you don't have these kings in your possession. You know, why are we going to help you? They're basically trying to protect themselves because they, they just see Gideon as this fledgling little guy with 300 guys following him. They don't think that he's really going to be able to finish this job. And so they don't want any reprisal from the kings of Midian after the whole Gideon thing is over and the Midianites come back. Okay. Well, what Gideon does is he basically curses them. And he says, listen, I'm going to come back and I'm going to teach you. He literally says, I'm going to teach you a lesson is what he says. And then he tells one, the second town, Penuel, uh, that he's going to tear down their tower. Okay. So then he pursues these uh, two kings. He does overtake them. He captures them. And then he doesn't kill them immediately. He brings them back in front of these two towns as proof that he did what they didn't think he could do. And then he does teach the men of Sukkoth a lesson. He, he takes uh, thorns and he just rakes these thorns over the, the 77 leaders of uh, Sukkoth, um, which probably killed them. And he really did tear down the tower of uh, Penuel and he killed the men of that city. Okay, so what we have here is Gideon um, being exhausted. You know, when Ephraim came to him and had an issue with him, he was able to give them a soft answer and turn away wrath. Well, by the time he gets to these other two cities, uh, when they don't answer him favorably, um, he's frustrated, he's angry, and he, he basically pronounces a curse upon them, and then he takes it out, his revenge out on them after he's gotten these kings of Midian. Now, the Bible here doesn't condemn him or praise him uh, for this particular action, and so I try to always be very careful to not condemn what the Bible doesn't condemn and to not praise uh, what the Bible does not praise. Uh, but here, I think we have to use other scripture to inform us uh, about uh, maybe how we should think about it. And there's a story uh, in the life of David where in 2 Samuel chapter 16, where Absalom has taken over Jerusalem, David's on the run, he's got a handful of people with him, and there's one survivor who comes out from the, the family of Saul, and he's cursing David along the road, and cursing him so much that he's throwing rocks and flinging dust uh, at David, because you know he doesn't like how David treated the family of Saul or whatever. You know He, he was hurt by that. And so... Uh, the men with David wanted to kill this guy, which, I mean, listen, David hadn't done anything wrong, hadn't done anything wrong in the Absalom situation, and really hadn't done anything wrong to the house of Saul either, okay? But David wouldn't allow him to, 
wouldn't allow these men to do that and basically said, listen, God will judge between the two of us. Maybe God is using him to say this, you know, and if not, then God will deal with it. He put it in the hands of God. Well, what we see three chapters later is that when Absalom is killed, David comes back into the town victorious. This same guy who threw rocks and cursed David three chapters ago comes and apologizes and repents for what he had done. Um, And he goes on to be an important person, actually, in the kingdom. This is a beautiful picture of what can happen when there's forgiveness and grace. Um, There can be repentance. And here, if uh, Gideon hadn't been so tired and so exhausted and speaking out of his exhaustion and his hurt, uh, perhaps he could have pulled David um, and gave them a soft answer. And maybe he still could have brought these kings back and showed them, hey, listen, I really did accomplish what you didn't think that I could. And maybe there could have been repentance. Instead, There was just violence and bloodshed, and it was pretty uh, nasty, okay? So what happens next is that Gideon does end up killing uh, Ziba and Zomuna, the kings of Midian, but not before he kind of encourages his oldest son, and this is the first time we encounter a, a child of Gideon, his oldest son, Jether, he asked him Uh, to kill these kings, which would have been considered an honor. He was really um, elevating his son, giving him an opportunity uh, to elevate himself in front of the people that he took out these kings. And it also would have been shameful for these two kings for having been killed by this young guy who hadn't uh, accomplished really anything yet uh, in his life. But he was too fearful for that. Apparently fear runs in the family. And so uh, Gideon did it himself and then he took you know, the ornaments that were around the necks of the camels of these guys. The next scene that we see in chapter 8, and I'm going to read it because I think it's important. In verse 22 of chapter 8, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons, and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they They had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites, and they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And basically, it it amounted to between forty five and like seventy forty and like seventy five pounds uh, of gold. Okay, because when you take the spoils off the soldiers, you're taking everything that's valuable. And apparently, one of their religious things, because of their culture of the Midianites, is that they had a golden earring, and so they took their golden earrings that was a part of their spoil. But they gave that part to Gideon, and here's what. Gideon did in verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. So here's what basically happens. Um, Gideon took this gold, and he made an ephod, which is uh, a shirt, basically. It's got a front and a back, and it would have been tied together with probably leather straps, and it was made of gold, and it was a religious uh, item. The, the 
high priest had a specially made ephod. It had uh, stones in it. You know, it symbolized certain things. So this was a religious uh, item, and we know even more that it was religious because the writer here tells us that it became a snare to Gideon and his family, and that Israel whored after it, which basically means they worshipped this ephod that he made. I mean, they worshipped it. It's it's kind of like. The ephod itself is not a bad thing. We really don't know why Gideon made it. Um, But the ephod itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's kind of like worshiping worship music or idolizing the preacher or worshiping a certain style of Christianity. It's when the thing becomes more important than the main thing. And that's what happened here. Uh, the, this thing became far more important than the main thing, which is worshiping God, and they hoard after it. Now, the rest of this chapter basically just sets up the story that's going to happen next. Because essentially what happens is Gideon has 70 sons he has many wives, and he even has a son from a concubine. And a concubine would have been a type of wife, but a type of wife that didn't live with you. She remained in her family. So she would have still been of her household. So any children of her household would have been considered of that household and not of the father's household. Okay. So Gideon, he said he didn't want to be a king, but he lived as a king anyway. He basically lived high enough on the hog where he could support 70 sons. And we don't, we're not told how many daughters, but certainly it wasn't 70 straight sons. And we're not even told how many wives, but it was many wives, okay? So he lived lavishly like a king, even though he had said he didn't want to be a king. So here's the takeaway from today. Sometimes our words don't match our actions. Sometimes we say the right things but then our actions actually show a different picture. And here with Gideon, he said all the right things, that the Lord will rule over them. Well, why did he make an ephod that people started worshiping, including his family members, if the Lord was going to rule over them? Uh, He said he didn't want to be a king, but then why does he go and have this many wives and this many sons uh, and kind of set himself up as kind of a king, a de facto king? Uh, in the area. Sometimes we say and do things that don't match. And I think part of what holiness is, part of what integrity is, is when our words and our actions align. Well, I hope that uh, you were able to survive. I know this was a long episode. I know we covered a lot of information in two chapters, okay? Uh, We are actually going to deal with the very last few verses of this chapter as we go into uh, chapter 9, because this is going to open up a whole terrible saga uh, in the history of the people of God. And I can't wait to walk with you through it on our next episode of By the Verse.